hope you'll take a Bible and turn to the book of Philippians, chapter 3. A number of us here in the congregation have been participating in a program called Partnering to Remember, where we memorize or are memorizing the book of Philippians between January 1st and Easter Sunday. Uh, some of us are all caught up on the weekly assignment. Uh, some are doing well. Some of you have a long, long way to go. In fact, you're going to have to memorize the whole book between Palm Sunday and Easter, but you're intent on doing that. But I've tried to bring a few sermons from the book of Philippians in today, chapter 3, looking primarily at at verses 7 and following, though I'd like to read beginning in the latter part of verse 4. Hear God's word. If anyone else thinks he has reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee. As for zeal, persecuting the church, as for legalistic righteousness, faultless. But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For whose sake I have lost all things, I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. That ends the reading of Scripture. It's been a number of years ago, but one night in September, there was a 41-year-old man named Andrew Thornton, and he was in a small plane flying over the northern part of Georgia between midnight and 3 a.m. Andrew Thornton was a former Army paratrooper, and he was also a narcotics officer for the Lexington, Kentucky Police Department. Uh, But now, uh, he was a member of an illegal drug gang. And on this particular night, he loaded his pockets with uh, $4,500 in cash, uh, a couple of knives, a couple of pistols, rope, food, and had a parachute on his back. And just as he prepared to jump out of the plane, he picked up and strapped to him two very heavy duffel bags filled with cocaine. And he attempted then to parachute down, but because of the cocaine being so heavy, it was too heavy a load for the parachute, and so he plunged through the air. Even though he tried to unload the cocaine, it was too late. And he plunged to his death in a backyard of a residential section in Knoxville, Tennessee. It's ironic that those things that that Mr. Thornton thought would give him wealth and freedom became the very things which led to his death. Now, often we think things are valuable when in another sense they're almost lethal. They promise us life, but they deliver death. They promise freedom, but they bring bondage. Here was another man named the Apostle Paul, and he had held on to certain things that he thought would give him life. He thought they would make him acceptable to God. And 
he lists what some of those were in the verses I read. They were religious credentials. They were good things. They were good deeds. He was circumcised on the eighth day. He was of the people of Israel by birth. He had not been grafted in, so to speak. Later, he was a Jew by birth. He was of the tribe of Benjamin, one of the most prestigious tribes. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews, a Pharisee. He was zealous to such an extent that he persecuted the early church. And when he said, in keeping the outward law, the Ten Commandments, he was faultless. No one could have laid blame at his feet for having broken any of the commandments. But he's struggling, and he later struggled with the question, how can a person be right with God? What does it mean to be right with God, to be forgiven, to know God? And now he looks back at those things he had counted on before to make him right with God, and he calls them rubbish. And some of the New Testament translations are quite more explicit. Dung, garbage. That's how he views those things now. So basically, this is a brief passage of Scripture on the subject of righteousness. Righteousness means being right in the eyes of God. That's what it means to be righteous, to be right in the eyes of God. The Bible says there's two types of righteousness. There's our own personal righteousness, and there's His righteousness attained by Christ. Often we think, well, I can be right with God by my own righteousness, where you try to live a certain way. Maybe you do good things, you, you go to church, or you follow some other religious teaching, some moral code. You live by the golden rule. You try to keep the Ten Commandments. You say prayers. You even pray for your family. You say a blessing before a meal and at bedtime. Maybe you give money. You tithe. You tell the truth. You try not to cheat. Good things? Yes, of course they're good things. Helpful things, no doubt. Things that will make you right with God? No, not according to what we learn here. They cannot make you right with God. Your own morality cannot make you right with God. First, because we all tend to see our own morality, our own righteousness, with a distorted perspective. By nature, we all assume that we are good people, or when we're not good, we were well-intentioned people. And therefore, we think we are just as acceptable to God as anyone else. And so we like to think we can attain God's acceptance through our own righteousness. And so we have to create certain levels of goodness and righteousness. At the top is God. He's perfect. Of course, none of us are up there because at that level because none of us are perfect. At the bottom are the, the worst of the worst, those that history deems the worst criminals, the mass murderers, the serial killers. And then in the middle are the rest of us. You know, we're not where the bottom feeders are, the way we see it. We're certainly not God. And we may see ourselves here, and then within there, we develop a pecking order where if we think someone's better than us, oh, we can find some dirt on them, or, you know, I heard that, or uh, they may seem one way, but they're really not. So we have distorted perspectives, and we compare ourselves with others. And therefore, we conclude the Lord must do the same. He must treat us the way we see ourselves. He must evaluate us the way I evaluate myself. The problem is that God does not operate that way. God says there are two kinds of righteousness, as I said, our own righteousness, man's righteousness, and then there's his righteousness. 
And regardless of how much we can accumulate of human righteousness, it cannot make us acceptable before God. Two reasons it can't make you acceptable before God. First is it has to be 100%. The book of James says, whoever keeps the whole law, all the Ten Commandments, all the laws that grew out of the Ten Commandments that are case laws and specifics, he says whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point is guilty of breaking all. It would be like a tightrope from that wall to that wall. And maybe a person could walk it and come out about 10 feet, and then that person falls. Maybe another person comes out 20 feet. Maybe a great athletic person comes all the way over here, gets almost, almost there, and then falls. That person is no better off than that person because they both fall. And the Bible says if you keep the whole law, yet stumble in one point, break one you're guilty of all. So righteousness that pleases God is 100%. It also is righteousness that's not only right actions, but right motives. It's not just the letter of the law that then is kept, it's the spirit of the law. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, you're familiar with these passages, he said, he used the example of murder. He said, you have heard it said you should not commit murder, but I tell you whoever is angry with his brother will be subject to the judgment. In other words, that you may not commit the act, but you may harbor the thoughts. And therefore he is saying that is not righteous, that, that's sin. So our righteousness, if you're depending on that to make you right with God, then it better be 100%. And if you think you're right with God with your own behavior, some of us here, could we could just start going down the Old Testament law and ask you if you kept that in every respect. Oh, and by the way, not only did you keep it, was your motive pure when you kept it? So that which we may naturally think makes us qualified for God's approval actually disqualifies us. We think it's profit when in reality it's loss. That's why in verse 7 he says, Whatever was to my profit I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. Think of a new checking account. You open a new checking account. And you don't bother to pay attention to the statements that are mailed to you every month or to go online, however you choose to do it. You know that every week you're going and making a deposit. You take your deposit slip and your $200 and you deposit it. And so after about three or four months, you decide to glance at the statement, see how much you've accumulated. To your shock, you discover that you were not making deposits, you were making withdrawals. And now you've got this big debt. Now you, everything's, you're liable. And what was profit or gain now is loss. That's what Paul said. Those things I thought were gaining God's favor, circumcised the eighth day, a Hebrew of Hebrews, persecutor of the church. Now I realize they weren't black ink, they were red ink. And I'm in a deficit situation with him. That's why in verses 7 and 8, he says, I consider those things as rubbish. My human accomplishments in order to gain God's favor as rubbish. Compared to Christ, that's what it is. So what's on your resume? When you stand before God, what do you plan to present to him? Will it be you try to be a good person? Will it be the good deeds you've done? Do you expect those to make you 
acceptable to God, there's a huge, huge difference between the gospel and religion. Between the gospel and religion. Religion is about me. The gospel is about Jesus. Religion says if I obey God's rules, then he will love me. But the gospel says because he has loved me through Jesus, I now have a new nature and a new desire to follow him. Religion sees people as good people and bad people. And it also says God loves the good and he hates the bad. But the gospel of Jesus sees everybody as bad. Everybody is sinners, and all have fallen short of the glory of God. And therefore, there are bad people, and there's Jesus. Religion is about what I do, but the gospel is about what Jesus has done. Religion trusts in my works, what I can do, what I can accomplish. The gospel allows us to rest in the finished work of Jesus. Religion confuses justification and sanctification. Justification is when you are connected to God, and then sanctification is when you live a new life. Religious people say, if you live a sanctified life, then as a result, God will justify you. But the gospel says that because God has justified me, therefore that enables me to grow in sanctification. Religious people hate to repent. They hate the word repentance because they believe they are good. And they think if I acknowledge that I've sinned, then it takes away from my goodness. And so they hate to repent. They hate to say they're sorry when they've done something wrong. But the gospel enables us humbly to repent. And we can say, I'm sorry. What I did was wrong. It was wrong. What I said was wrong because if my righteousness is from Jesus, then I do not lose anything when I repent. Religion leads to an uncertainty about your standing with God. Because when you die, will you go to heaven or hell? Religion says, I don't know. I don't know if I've been good enough or not. So religion produces two things, anxiety and despair. Anxiety and despair. There's anxiety of whether you're right with God or not, but there's despair, not knowing. Those two things together. But the gospel invites certainty, where I can say, I know that God accepts me. It's not arrogance, it's certainty. It is a humble certainty. He accepts me because of the righteousness of Jesus. Religion results in either pride or despair. Meaning, if you try really hard to be a good religious person, a devoted passionate religious person. You'll be proud because you'll say, look at me. I need someone to affirm my goodness. I need someone to affirm what an example I am, that I'm a good person. Or it ends in despair. Religion ends in despair because it says it's too late. I've already done too many bad things. I can't go back and correct them now. Especially at the end of life, religion offers nothing. But the gospel ends in humble joy. And that's the message of Philippians. So let's look at the second type of righteousness. Look for a moment at our type of righteousness that we can accomplish or try to accomplish. But now he talks about the righteousness of Christ. 
Jesus was perfect. He said, I always do those things that are pleasing to my Father. 100% of the time. Even at his arrest, which led to his crucifixion, when they wanted to produce charges, they had to drum up false charges and pay false witnesses. Now, I'm sure you are a bunch of respectable people, I would hope. But if you were put on trial, we could probably find somebody somewhere who truthfully could say something wrong that you've done. They could give account to that. With Jesus, even in the face of his enemies, no one could come up with a verifiable sin or anything he had committed, so they had to pay off people to make some things up. He said, I always do those things that are pleasing to my Father. We call this his act of obedience that he had complete obedience to God's law, his outward actions, he had the motivations to match that. He not only did the right thing, he did it the right way with the right motives. He kept God's commandments in the fullest sense of the word. He lived perfectly, and that's, that's what he did. Now, how do we get his righteousness? Verse 9 says this. It says beginning at just before that, I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. In other words, not having a righteousness that I accomplish by my obeying God's laws, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. What does this mean? How do we get this? Well, by faith. This righteousness achieved by Christ, his perfect record, his obedience to God's law, is now offered to you and me to receive by faith. We don't work for it. We don't earn it. We receive it as a free gift by faith, by trusting in what he's done. That's what, that is what makes the death of Christ personal. Now, there are two parts to this transaction. First is, we are sinners, and our sin must be punished, and the punishment is death. God says, Christ died in your place to take your punishment. And not only to take the punishment my sin deserved, he now offers me his righteousness, his perfect record, his wealth in his account, where in my deficit account. That's his active obedience. His righteousness is now given to us by faith when we trust that personally. The Bible says once we were no people, now we are God's people. Once we were aliens, now we are citizens of heaven. Before we were separated from God, now we have fellowship with God. That is salvation. How do we get this? Verse 9 tells us, I use the word, it is imputed to us. That's not a word we use too often. Not often enough. To impute means to take guilt or innocence and you, you accredit that to another, another person. So what Paul is saying, when he had faith in Christ, that Christ was truly the Messiah, the Son of God, that he died in his place, that he took the punishment for his sin, for Paul's sin, as his own, then he's saying when he trusted that, he lost his own self-confidence and his own self-righteousness, and he gained the righteousness of Christ. And the technical word is imputation, which means to credit to one's account or to put to one's account. Paul looked at his own record, and he discovered he was spiritually bankrupt. His account had red ink, lots of red ink. And then he looked at Christ's record. 
And God took Christ's huge account and put it into Paul's deficit account. And that's what it means to experience grace. Has that transaction happened to you? Has that deposit happened to you? Have you received the righteousness of Christ by faith alone? You say, I'm not sure. Well, here are some results in verse 10. You'll want to know Christ. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. Not a shallow knowledge of Christ, but you'll want to know him personally. You'll want to know him intimately. Paul wanted this to affect every day, his daily life, to enter more and more into a deeper and deepening intimate relationship with Christ. Do you have that desire to know him through his word, through prayer, through talking about him? To awake in the morning and live each day that keenly aware that you're in his presence. Religion, religion cannot give you that. It can't give you anything like that because religion is focused on self. It's impersonal. There's no joy in religion. When Paul was living under his religious rules, under the law, all he had was a set of rules. That's all you have at the end of the day. Legalism gives you nothing but a set of rules at the end of the day. But now, through Christ, there's a friend, there's a master, there's a companion. The second result, he said, I want to share in the power of his resurrection. The very power that raised Jesus from the dead is at work now in the lives of his followers. And that's only possible by our own trust in him. And he gives that power through Christ and to share in his sufferings. Do you value your soul? I'm appealing today to those that may be here that that, that aren't believers. Um, do y'all listen to the New Atheist? Do y'all read books by Richard Dawkins and Christopher Hitchens and Sam Harris? And I was reading some yesterday and listening to Sam Harris on the Internet. And uh, if you're not acquainted with that, it's absolutely shocking, the things that will be said so fast toward people that believe in God. And at the end of it, I just thought, how empty, how empty, how empty. As one person said, the only thing worse than disappointment with God is disappointment without God. And and I like what John Blanchard says, that the the evidence for God's existence is not conclusive. It's not overwhelming. But everything we see points in that direction. And when I had a person once ask me, "Do do you hear what you're saying, Chip? She looked at me and laughed when I talked about the cross and the resurrection. I said, this makes more sense to me than anything else I see around me. It makes more sense to me than any other explanation of how, why the world is the way it is. So I want to appeal to you that the way to be right with God is not some straw man that a Christian is somebody that, oh, believes in God and just tries to live by the Ten Commandments. That's how I've heard it characterized numerous times by unbelievers. No, that's not it at all. It's realizing we can't live by the Ten Commandments. They're a great guideline for life, but they can't save any of us any more than an x-ray could help my broken leg. It just shows me where the problem is. But the gospel is what mends us, the work of Christ. And when we trust him, we often focus on, well, my sins are forgiven. Yeah, but you get the righteousness of Christ. He, your, your account then is credited with his righteousness. And that's why Paul said, compared to that, All the previous things I've done were like garbage. 
Uh, we live in a world, and I conclude with this, that, that the things we see look so important. The material things, our bodies, our appearance, our health. But the Bible says your most important possession is your soul because it will last forever. Your soul will last forever. It is your most important possession. And sometimes we need a dose of reality to make us see that. Uh, a number of years ago, I read a book I mentioned to you called Ship of Gold in the Deep Blue Sea. It's a great, wonderful, exciting account of a terrible tragedy, the worst peacetime maritime disaster that's ever taken place in America. It's the sinking of a ship, the SS Central America, that sunk after a hurricane 200 miles off the shore of North Carolina uh, back in 1957. The year before this sanctuary was built, that ship went down. 400 people died. Many people were saved uh, and, and were rescued later. The ship was coming back from the California gold fields, so most of the people on the ship had been miners or had a vested interest in the gold that had been discovered in California, hence the name Ship of Gold. Let me read you two paragraphs, three paragraphs of what happened as they realized the ship was going down. They had worked for two days during this lengthy hurricane to try to get the pumps working, and finally it was a losing battle, and they all came to recognize it's going down. Unless we're rescued, we're going to drown. Uh, the writer said, now they had to decide whether to take the gold or leave it behind. Most of the passengers were returning miners who had accumulated at least a few thousand dollars in gold, which they carried with them in treasure belts and in carpet bags and in purses. But gold was dense. A red house brick weighs about four pounds, but a gold brick of the same weighs nearly 50 pounds. Even in small amounts, gold could sink a weak swimmer or quickly exhaust a strong one. Yet some of the men had suffered great hardships since the summer of 1849 to accumulate the contents of that treasure belt or that carpet bag. As if to dramatize the hysteria of such a dilemma, one man ripped open a bag containing $20,000 in gold dust and he sprayed it about the cabin like it was grains of sand. Others unhitched treasure belts, upended purses, snacked open carpet bags, flinging shiny coins and dust across the floor. Hundreds, one person said, hundreds of thousands of dollars were thus thrown away, said a passenger. One man had a satchel filled with 825 $20 double eagle gold pieces, fresh from the San Francisco Mint. He retrieved these from his stateroom, and according to a witness, flung them onto the floor of the captain's cabin, telling the men to help yourselves, and no one did. Purses filled with gold lay untouched amid the shouting and the confusion. Some men stood topside in a resigned daze and tossed gold coins at the wind. See, what looks so important right now in the face of eternity is not what is most important. Your soul is what's most important. And you want to be found trusting in the righteousness, not of your own record, but of Christ. When you stand before God, will you present to him your righteousness, your resume, your good deeds? If so, they will be like gold bricks that will sink you to your doom. But if you stand clothed in the righteousness of Christ that's been received by faith alone, then you will be welcomed into God's presence 
Receive it by faith if you've not already done so, even as we pray together. Our Father, we, we thank you for the righteousness of Christ. Thank you that when you saw us dead, dead in our trespasses and sins, that you sent Christ to be our Redeemer, to be our Savior. May our trust, may our dependence, may our faith be in his work, in his only. In Jesus' name, amen. Our closing song speaks of this. It speaks about the work of Christ. If you'll turn to it on the back of the worship folder, and Carrie Beth will sing the first as we stand stand together. She'll sing the first verse. In-